uh, you can kind of make your way around. There's more than enough. This is just the passage that we're looking at this morning, and not all of it will be up on the screen. And there's also some stuff on the other side that um, might be helpful. You want to pass those around too? If you're with us uh, online, uh, you can start heading to Luke 15. That's the passage that we're in this morning. As we keep going through this series called Wholehearted, on this last Sunday of Lent, hard to believe, uh, but here we are already I'm at the end of the six Sundays of Lent. I'm going to begin with um, something that we're all quite familiar with, uh, and that's, that's the idea of making a mistake. <laughs> uh, making mistakes is a universal human experience. There's no one who gets off on, on that one or somehow escapes uh, the making of mistakes. We all fall short. We all don't live up to the values that we have or that the values that others might have. And so we all know what it's like to fall short, which may lead you to think that we'd be pretty good at navigating the emotions and the experiences that we have when we fall short, right? We do it so much and we all do it that you think we would be good at it. I'm not so sure we are. <laughs> At least I know I'm not. In my life, uh, this is something that I, I certainly struggle with, how to respond to all the ways that I fall short, how to respond and how to handle the experience of, of making a mistake. And the story this morning that we're looking at is a story about someone at least in part, it's a story about someone who made a whole bunch of mistakes. And the experience of that and the consequences of that, and again, it's in Luke 15. I'll read just the start of it here uh, to get us going. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. So this story from Luke 15 is one that we've considered many times uh, over the years here on, on Sunday mornings. Um, I keep coming back to it. 
I find it to be one of the most compelling pictures of what the gospel is. If you're trying to understand the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus, I'm not sure there's a better story to turn to. I do think that this is the longest story Jesus tells. I think that's right. I didn't check it, but I'm pretty sure that's correct, and you can fact check me. Either way, a lot of ink is spilled on this story. I think that might get our attention and be a clue to us that this is, this is a really important story. It's a story, again, that begins with someone falling short. And it's not hard to spot the ways that this younger son does that, the ways in which he falls short and, and is ruled by his ego and in which he demonstrates a lack of wisdom and an arrogance. I mean, his mistakes are there for all to see. What I want to note this morning is how this son and others in his family respond to him falling short. Because again, I'm not sure that we're very good at it when it happens in our lives. I think we really struggle with the reality that we make mistakes. And when we make them, we often don't know the best way to, to respond to those mistakes that we make. So today we're going to look at four common human experiences that we have when we fall short. We're going to look at guilt, shame, humiliation, and perfectionism. And I'll admit that when I first came across these four in Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart, um, I thought, oh, these are kind of all the same, really. Guilt, shame, humiliation. Um, she also has others in this chapter that she calls places we go when we fall short. There's embarrassment. Um, there's a few others that she lists. But oh, these are kind of all the same. But that was just not true as I thought about it more carefully. And so it might be helpful to just start by defining these four that we're going to look at today. And we'll start with guilt. Guilt, uh, one way to summarize it would be uh, that I did something bad. In guilt, the focus is on behavior, not on yourself and who you are. And guilt can be uncomfortable. I'll say more about that in a little bit. But guilt is like when you get a quiz back and you got an F, you may say to yourself, oh, it was really not smart of me to go to that party last night instead of studying. Whoops. I made a mistake. Right? That's guilt. It's a focus on behavior. A mistake. Shame is different. Shame says, uh, not that I did something bad, but shame says, no, I am bad. The focus is on self, and it's feeling flawed, and so flawed, in fact, that you are unworthy of love and belonging and connection. This is when you get an F on a quiz, and you say to yourself, I am so stupid. Not, I made a stupid mistake by going to the party, but I, myself, am stupid. Humiliation is when someone says to me, no, uh, they point out, you are bad. <laughs> this is when someone helps us. Uh, so you get an F, the teacher hands you the quiz, and your 
classmate sitting next to you sees the grade and says to everyone in the class, hey, look at this idiot who got an F on the quiz. And you feel anger and embarrassment and maybe um, some disgust with yourself. That's humiliation. And then perfectionism, which is connected to shame, is, you know, I don't want you to think that I'm bad. And if I can just live perfectly then I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame or judgment or blame. So those are the four that we're going to kind of look at this morning. Let's go back to Luke 15. We read the first five verses, but there's quite a bit more to the story. That's why I printed it out for you. Or again, if you're with us online, I hope you have it pulled up on your phone or you have a Bible in front of you. And we're going to take a few minutes here. Uh, to give you, each of us, a chance to read through the story. That'll take a few minutes in and of itself. And then as you read, to ask yourself, where do you see guilt, shame, humiliation, and or perfectionism in this story? Who do you see it in? How do you see it demonstrated? Maybe something that someone says or something that someone does that points to one of these things. If you'd like, you can turn to the people around you and have a little bit of a conversation. But here's um, a Google Doc, a, a QR code that will get you to a Google Doc, where I'd love to have you just type in what strikes you. So as you're reading through the story, and you, oh, you know what, this kind of seems like guilt. You can type it into that Google Doc so we get a little bit of a collection here. If you're online, hopefully you can get to this same QR code. Um, but let's take a few minutes here, like a good three, four, maybe even five minutes to read through the story, chat with the people around you. Hey, what, what did you see? Feel free to have a conversation. We'll get this Google Doc rolling, and then we'll, we'll carry on from there. All right? Ready, set, go. I always love this, even with a small group like we are today, you know, there's things in here that you're noticing that, to be real honest, I didn't. <laughs> and that's the beauty of, I think, a, a, a collection of people coming together. There's always more wisdom in a group than there is in an individual, as obvious as that may sound. So some of you are noticing perfection or perfectionism in verse 29, this, this older son who says, you know, I've slaved for you all these years, never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. I think that's probably right. It's a form of perfectionism, at least. And, and we see it there. A couple of you pointed out then in verse 30, this interesting thing. This is one that I didn't think about, is that there's a form of humiliation here. You know, this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, and you celebrate by, filling, by killing the fattened calf. I think you're right. You know, the, the younger son isn't there. The younger brother isn't there to hear that, from what we can tell. Um, but it's still a form of humiliation. Um, absolutely. So I appreciate that. That's, that's, again, something I didn't necessarily see. And then, yeah, you're, you're both noticing, a number of you are noticing that there's this, this collection of guilt and shame in the younger son. 
You know, guilt, I've sinned both against heaven and you. This recognition of making mistakes, falling short. I think that's right. But there does also perhaps seem to be some shame. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I don't belong. That's what he's saying. I'm not worthy of being a part of the family, right? So in this story, there's all of these things. No surprise. Because when we make mistakes, these things show up. And one of the things we're trying to do again in this Lenten conversation is give ourselves a really strong vocabulary so that when we, in this instance, make a mistake, we can pause long enough to ask ourselves, okay, hold on, hold on. What am I feeling in this moment? Is it guilt? Is it shame? Is it humiliation? Is it something else? Because what we are feeling or what we are experiencing, identifying it correctly really matters. And let's get into why that might be. I want to talk for a moment about shame and about guilt and the difference between the two. You may already know this, but this is something I didn't learn until well, well into life and really am still learning. So my, my hunch is that for some of us, this may be helpful to just talk for a moment about the distinction between these two. Here's what I want to say about shame. Shame causes us, or it encourages us, to want to hide. Do you know what I mean? Have you experienced that before? My hunch is yes. Shame encourages us to hide. It tells us that distance and withdrawal is the answer. Because shame says that who you are, as you are, your mistake-prone self, you the person who messed up, you the person who hurt someone, you, you, cannot, you will not be loved. You cannot be accepted. You do not belong as you are. That's what shame tells us. And if we believe that voice, then we want to hide. Sometimes, quite literally, um, if you're with someone who's experiencing shame, you will notice that they will break eye contact, that they will not look at you. Um, even our physical cues clue us into the fact that we want to hide when we feel shame. And perfectionism is actually a form of hiding. Think about what perfectionism is. Perfectionism is building a facade. The image of a perfect life. I have it all together. I've got it all squared away. And we work and we work and we work to build this facade, this image, so that people don't actually look at who we are. If you just look over here at this beautiful thing I've made, this perfect picture of my life and who I am, then you will not actually ever look over here at these other parts of myself. And so perfectionism is a way of hiding. It's a way of distancing ourselves from other people. And we see this in the story. The older son is where when we encounter him. 
he is standing outside of the house. There's a party going on. The the fattened calf does not get killed very often. You should be at the party when there's a fattened calf. But he, he won't go in. There's distance because of this facade he's built. And if he goes into the party, it might all crumble, and he might have to get a lot closer to other people and to himself. <laughs> Perfectionism also allows us to hide from ourselves in a, in a weird sort of way. So he's standing on the outside. There's distance. And the younger son, what does he do when money runs out at first? When he first runs out of money, he does not go home. My hunch is because he feels so much shame. I can't go home. How can I go home after what I've done? I will never be accepted, welcomed, loved. I will never belong. And so he stays and tries to find a job. Tries to what? I don't know. Work his way out of it. Um, prove to himself that he can do it. And so he ends up with the pigs. Because shame has told him that he doesn't belong. Guilt is different. Guilt arises when our behavior does not align with our values. And when our behavior doesn't align with what we say or believe is important, there's dissonance. Um, And it's uncomfortable. Guilt doesn't feel good. That's not what I'm saying. Guilt doesn't feel good. It's uncomfortable. But that discomfort actually can be a cue to alert us that, hey, something is not aligned here. And if we have an open enough heart, it can help us move back toward home. Guilt can help us take responsibility for what we've done. I have sinned against heaven and you. That's an owning. That's a taking responsibility on some level of what we've done. And as hard as it is to own our mistakes, when we own and take responsibility for what we have done, it moves us at least a step closer to the people that we have harmed or hurt or separated ourselves from. And so guilt has a way of potentially moving us closer, and shame has a way of distancing us from each other. They're very different things. And I know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware, um, I've experienced that um, even when I have felt guilty, I've recognized a misalignment, there are times even when I've tried to own and taken responsibility for what I've done, that um, doing so doesn't magically fix things right away, always. That sometimes when you take responsibility for something and you try to move back toward the person that you have hurt or the person with whom there is some distance, uh, sometimes that person isn't ready to receive you. Sometimes the hurt is too great. Sometimes we have to move back towards that person again and again and again. So I am not trying to say to you today that, hey, if you just decide to move towards home and take ownership and responsibility for what you've done, then guess what? Everything will work itself out uh, quickly and easily. 
uh, you know that, that, that life just doesn't work that way in our human relationships. And yet, I do want to say to you that the only way to experience reconciliation is to move closer, to head back toward home. There is no other way. You cannot stay in a distant land and experience reconciliation. You can't stand outside of the house and experience restoration. You have to move toward. We see in this story that when we have enough courage, or as I think in the case of the younger son, we are at rock bottom enough, we are desperate enough to move toward home, this is when restoration can begin to happen. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Now I think this story is instructive for all of our human relationships. But I think Jesus tells this story primarily to help us understand our relationship with the divine, with God, with who the Israelites called Yahweh, with who Jesus described as a mother hen gathering her chicks under her protective wing, and who Jesus describes as Abba, a parent so good and full of compassion, so flowing with unconditional love. Jesus wants us to understand that when we turn toward home, God runs to meet us when we are still a long way off. And God wraps God's arms around us in embrace. It's not just the younger son, though, who's extended compassion. The older son, the perfectionist son, hears this. Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. Jesus is going out of his way to help us believe something that I think is maybe the hardest thing for any of us to believe. That as you are, you are loved. I think that is the hardest thing for any of us to believe. That who I am in all of my brokenness and with all of the ways that I have fallen short, I belong, I am accepted, I am loved. I just don't think we always believe that to be true. I think what we tell ourselves, or at least what I tell myself, is that when I do enough, then I will have earned belonging. Or when I check enough things on the list, on the religious list, then God will welcome me. Or when I get my act cleaned up, then But Jesus is saying something very different in this story. 
It's not that we don't have to take responsibility for what we have done. We do. Part of turning toward home is saying, I have sinned against heaven and you. I've made a mistake. But it is not going from guilt to shame. Guilt can be helpful. But this story makes it clear that we don't have to then take the next step that we often take and say, therefore, because I've made a mistake, I am a mistake. I am not lovable. I am not worthy. See, this is the good news of the gospel. That when you fall short, you can always turn toward home. The younger son has made every possible mistake a person can make, and yet when he turns toward home, he is embraced. The same is true for us. And you may say to me, and I may say to myself, is it that simple? Yes. But it's not easy. Because again, as I've said, it's hard to believe that who I am today as I am is actually someone who is lovable and worthy of belonging. And so instead we find reasons to not turn toward home. I can't turn home until I earn the money back of my inheritance. I can't turn back home until my perfectionism is approved. We find all kinds of reasons to stay where we are. And Jesus is inviting us to do what is not easy, but what is the way to healing and wholeness and restoration. And so I want to end this morning by just posing a question to you. I don't have all of the answers in the sense that I can't tell you what you should do to turn toward home because each of us are in different places and have had course, different experiences and carry different things in here with us this morning. So it will look probably different for all of us. But I want to ask you then, what would be a first step for you to turn toward home? And if you're here in this space, there's on the back of your sheet if you are someone who is helped by writing things, and I actually think most of us are, you might find it helpful to write down what a step would be for you. And this may be as simple as um, a first step for me would be to open my, my heart to the possibility of being loved. I mean, that, that might be the first step. I'm just going to try and be open to this story and that it could be real. Maybe there's something to own today for you. you. The step for you to turn toward home is to own something. I have sinned against heaven and you. You need to name something. That, that may be it. Maybe for some of us, shame is the thing that really has a hold on us and, and the step toward home today is to try and let go of that shame, to acknowledge it and then to try and leave it behind. I don't know what it is for you, but I want to give just a moment here to be quiet and to reflect and to ask ourselves what it might mean to turn toward home today.